And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the season three premiere of the Eric Norcross podcast. I'm Eric Norcross, your host, and this is my show. And this is the 90th episode. And for the 90th episode, I have a recurring guest. This is gonna. This is his second appearance on the show. It's author Avi. We're going to be talking about his book Loyalty and City of Magic. We're going to be talking a little bit of politics because loyalty is definitely. Uh, a conversation starter for political discussion. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about some of Abby's writing philosophies uh, about his life. I know he grew up in Brooklyn. I want to unpack that a little bit. Uh, and I hope we could have just a great conversation for you guys. And, and I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it productive and insightful. This episode comes at the request of one of my listeners. And I appreciate this individual reaching out and asking for me to bring Avi back on. I don't know if I would have thought of it. I, I don't think to reach out to guests again after I've had them on. And this was such a good idea. And so, Avi, this is his second appearance on the show, and I couldn't be happier to have him. So please welcome Avi, and I'll see you on the other end. How's it going? How are you? Good. Oh, that's a great shelf. Love that. My books. Yeah. Okay. I keep mine in crates. I bought a bunch of crates from Home Depot or someplace. It's called a crate idea. <laughs> Got your book. Loved it. Okay. Loyalty. You know, I when I was in elementary school, I became a sucker for the revolution. The American Revolution. Well, a lot of revolutions, I was about to say. Yeah. I used to be obsessed with the Battle of Lexington and Concord. And there was this, this old TV movie with Tommy Lee Jones called April Morning that later I found out was based on a novel. Huh. And, and I was obsessed with it. I don't know why. I don't know why I was obsessed with did it. You, did you ever go to the reenactment? No. No, I, don't I haven't either. I haven't, I'd like to. I'm told it's quite a 
spectacle. Well, I'm going to add it to my list. I didn't know they did it, but it makes sense that they would. They reenact Hamilton's death all the time. <laughs> oh, do they? I didn't know that. Yeah, down in Weehawk. And, and I think it's uh, the ancestors of Hamilton and Burr that do it. Really? Yeah. Does Hamilton decide to shoot for once? <laughs> no, I, th- I think he still puts his gun in the air. Mistake. I agree. So uh, this guy, Jay, well, his handle is Jay, reached out to me over the winter and spring asking me to uh, bring you back on. And I thought that was a great idea. And uh, when I didn't respond because I was busy with some stuff, he then reached out to me. First, he reached out to me on YouTube. And then a few months went by. And then he reached out to me on Twitter. But this time he came with a bunch of questions. So I'm like, you know what? I, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read these latest books. We'll bring him back on if he wants to, and we'll see what we we can we can do here. So well, here I am. Yeah, here we are. I uh, I'd love to start with loyalty. I think that that's the most relevant conversation in, in terms of just like what's going on in the country and with families. Uh, and so you, you you talked in the afterward about this idea of taking a real person all you knew is his name his death and you made everything else up and uh i just can you unpack a little bit about your process for doing that and whether or not you had any reservations about making up a fictional life around somebody who was actually alive um i think over the years and i've been writing now for a long time. My process has changed. I like to think it's better. I'm not sure it is. Uh, there are a number of things that are very obvious. The books have become longer. Um, I think they've become a little bit more complex. And I think they have um, Again, I like to think they've become uh, deeper and more interesting, but that's that's a reader's perception. I don't know anyone in the world, and that includes my wife, who's read all my books. I was talking to her the other day about some book of mine, and she said, you know, I ought to read that one. <laughs> so yeah, she should, but uh, nobody has and I'm not wishing it on anyone, but uh, I suppose if somebody did, there'd be certain themes and ways of writing that would stand out, but I don't know what they are. In other words, every book that I do is separate in both its conception, unless it's a sequel, obviously, But um, essentially, I start on a story, and what has become my method is I, as it were, write the shell of the book, the exoskeleton, if you will, uh, the plot. And then I go back over and over and over again and fill it up with ideas, uh, hopefully, real humanity to give it life and meaning in that way. So that's the way I'm working these days. 
that said, I mean, here I am working on a new book, uh, sort of struggling with it. And I should say this, the books become harder to write as I get older. You would like to think, I would like to think, I wish it was so. Uh, having written so much, uh, I could fall off the log with a book in my hand. It doesn't work that way. It seems to get harder. My excuse for that is that my standards are higher and so that I'm fussier and fussier and want it better and better. I don't even know if that's true. Maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm working on this new book and it's hard. And then all of a sudden I'm writing it in the first person and I'm saying, well, maybe it should be in the third person. So I rewrite a portion of the book and trying to decide what's the right approach. What I'm trying to suggest, Eric, is that uh, I'm inventing as I go along. I, it's, it's easy for me to talk of process, but I don't know if I have a concrete one. I just simply sit down and try to make the book work. And that takes endless, endless revisions. Uh, and when I get to the end, the first draft, I've already revised the book countless times. And then I go back and revise it all over again. And then at, at a certain point, uh, I will share it with one or two other people. Usually the first one is my wife. I read it to her. And yes, I'm reading it to her and she gives very good critiques. She's very, very smart. But I'm also listening and I'm, as it were, evaluating the book on my own terms. And when I read it to her, it's only always with a pen in my hand and I'm marking the manuscript as I go along. And then I have one or two friends who are, I trust and good readers, we exchange books and so forth. And I get good criticism and then I go back and revise again. And then at a certain point, it, it's useless to keep, I'm, I'm doing little tiny things and then I have to give it to my editor. And then I revise again because the editor will inevitably come back. In all my years, only once as an editor say, oh good, I'm gonna send it to my copy editor. And when he did that, I said, no, 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 stop. I have more things to do with it. I stopped him. So it's never really happened that the book I wrote goes from my computer to copy editing and is done. It never happens. So when you talk about process, uh, essentially it's constant revision, constantly. And sometimes big changes happen. And then I go through the whole thing again. Uh, I mean, I like to say I revise a book 70 or 80 times. I don't know how many times, maybe more, probably more. Uh, and it's just intuitive. I would be useless as an instructor in writing because I don't know what to tell people. I'll just say rewrite. <laughs> and uh, hopefully they do. So that doesn't answer your question, but that's truly as best as I can do. No, that was, that's good talking points, though, because now, well, I mean, before you were talking about, sorry, I'm blanking. You're talking about how your your books are becoming deeper 
I like you, to think so. Yeah. So are you, do you think that when you're tackling these stories, you're thinking deeper or you want, are you striving to make them more meaningful than I guess you felt no, they I'm were? Not striving. I, I think, you know, when I was a young guy, we were all young once, right? And uh, I had pretty set convictions about things the way young people do. And as I've gotten older, those set convictions, those uh, notions have modified and simplified and generalized. Uh, I now believe uh, strongly that having a, a complex, rigid system of beliefs doesn't work. I, I used to describe myself by one philosophy or another. Now I like to think being pragmatic, deciding what works is the best way to solve problems so that I don't have a particular ideology. I've come to hate ideology in the sense that it puts people in a box. And you, I mean, you probably, as I did, looked at those pictures of the universe yesterday. It's very big. It's very big. <laughs> and my point of view is irrelevant in that world, in that universe, in that cosmos. To think that I have a, a system to explain things. Uh, I was looking at one of those images and there was one of the scientists who's part of this project. And she says, I don't know what that thing is there. And she pointed to a, a spot and she didn't know what it was. And here she's this astrophysicist. So who the hell am I to, to think that I have answers to things? So I like to think that what I'm trying to do is describe things accurately. And that's the best approach that I can come up with. A lot of a lot of the questions I have is from the afterward. Although I do have some stuff about the novel itself, but um, in your afterward, you bring up the January sixth incident, uh, and um, was did this play a role in the development of this novel, or was this something that happened after you wrote it and you felt you needed to confront it? It happened after. I started the book about two and a half years before those events. And uh, it's other people who have pointed out that aspects of the novel uh, reflect what's going on today. And of course, I wrote the afterwards after I wrote the novel, after it was all done. Um, but that attempted coup, as I call it, uh, echoes a lot of the, the words of the American Revolution. That's not, it was not accidental. And the notion of who's a patriot and who's not. Uh, I think it was Samuel Johnson who said, patriotism is the last refuge, refuge of a scoundrel. I, I sort of like that notion. And um, so, yeah, a number of people have pointed out similarities, but that, that was in no no sense, in no sense in my mind as I wrote the book. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things you mentioned was, and I had no idea, 
was that the divisions in families back then are pretty much what they are have been since 2016, where right. people in the same nuclear household are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Like Ben Franklin's kid was right. for the king. I had no idea. But he was more than like Franklin's son was the royal governor of New Jersey. Uh, he was captured at one point by the revolutionaries. Uh, he was imprisoned, I think, in Connecticut. And uh, he was released upon promising he would not take arms against the new colonies. But he did. And he led military actions against the radicals. So, I mean, it was not just, as you say, within the family, but this was a violent and, and Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, who's a remarkable person in his own right, never forgave his son. He, he, he was a man who Franklin was, who progressed and changed over his years, fascinating man, but he would never forgive his son, ever. So it's an interesting story. Do you Somebody think should write a, a, a joint biography of the two of them, actually. It would make a good book. Yeah, it would. It'd be something I'd read. Do you think it's possible for, um, I mean, it's it, it just always seems so bleak, especially with the whole Supreme Court things that have been coming out, uh, decisions that have been coming out. Um, do you see a path to healing for this country? Uh, like, Ben Franklin didn't speak to his kid again. And I would hate to hate for that to happen with the families that aren't talking to each other now. Correct. Um, let me be a bit naive and suggest if people started to reading, reading again, the demise of newspapers, I think has had a catastrophic effect on the social fabric of this country. Uh, the dependency on media for information has been catastrophic. I find that uh, people lack information, knowledge, ways of thinking. I think that's partly led to where we are today. So reading, let's get everyone to read. Yeah, I read an interview with Tina Fey some, some years ago, um, where she'd rec she, she, she had been asked what's one book that people should read right after Trump was elected, and she'd recommended Lenny Riefenstahl's biography. Really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I ended that I ended up reading it as a result of that, and I'm like, damn, Why? this is horrifying. I mean, this is horrifying. Oh. Yeah. It's just like an insider insider's view of just kind of how Germany just went to oh, shit. Right. And, right. Yeah. right. Pardon my French. Um, yeah, yeah. You could, as you mentioned too, like, like the population during the Revolution era was separated into thirds for the Revolution, against the Revolution, and indifference people. And I feel like it's still kind of like that. There's a lot of indifferent people. Yeah, it's, that's a traditional way of looking at it. I, I've never seen whether anybody really. I'm sure, but maybe I just don't know. 
anyone really research that. And, and let it be said that when people talk about that broken into thirds, they almost always are neglecting three factors in the population, women, <laughs> enslaved people, and indentured people who were sort of halfway slaves. And for example, among blacks, enslaved peoples, most of them, particularly in the South, were in favor of the British because the British had offered them freedom if they would come to their side. And by the other token, same side of the token, other side, Southern elites were in favor of the revolution because they, it would keep things as the status quo. So it, it's, in, in, in one of my books, is one of my favorite lines is from that book, uh, Catch You Later, Traitor. And a father is trying to explain to his son, the he said, Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator, et cetera, et cetera. And we all know those phrases. But Jefferson owns slaves. So the father says to the son, it's complicated. If you know that things are complicated, you've learned half the philosophy of the world. <laughs> I agree with that. Things are not simple. They're never simple. That's, I guess that's my wisdom of the ages. I've learned things are complicated. They're never simple. Yeah, that's that's always my answer to like, I have somebody in my family who recently called me evil for writing a story about a dog, a boy and his dog. And the dog in this story, its purpose is to save the soul of the boy while the boy is growing up. And this person who's very religious called me evil. And I'm, evil. and yeah, and it was a member of my family. And I just, one, like, I just think when somebody builds their, their internal world around good and evil, they're disregarding all the complexities that of everything of how people live their lives where they come from and just literary being able to understand a work of literature <laughs> and yeah. the metaphors right. right yeah well for what it's worth you don't look evil well thanks <laughs> i think my my voice as a writer at least for the stories i submit to journals is grittier than how i talk to people in real life so <laughs> I mean, one of the great skills of the world is listening, right? Yeah. Or just like being able to talk about literature, which this person definitely doesn't have a literary background. Right. Um, when you have, at least the public education system we came from in Maine, there were reading classes, not so much literary classes where you talked about books. Right. You sat down and you read the book in the class. And I know for a fact that this person came from the same school that I did. And so that's sort of where I think that problem and misunderstanding is rooted. Sure. Sure. It's a nice segue, actually, because I did have a lot of some education uh, bullet points. So I'm sure you have some, some thoughts on the education system. 
I made some notes from some of your Q&A from your website because there are some, some interesting answers here I'd love to expand on. Um, you, in the Q&A, you talk about how you weren't a good student, especially in writing, and that you failed all your courses in high school. And th th this is something that I'm always trying to, to tell people is it doesn't mean it's the end of the line. Clearly, you become a very successful person regardless of your grades. And um, how, how did you segue from being a, a, a below average student to being a, a good writer, eventually a published writer, and now somebody who I consider to be at the sort of, and, and, and I know it sounds like I'm blowing smoke, but I'm not. I think that you're at the top of where everybody would like to be, you know, especially, especially on like, if you follow the writing community on Twitter, for example, everybody's trying to get to where you're at, but you started out in school with subpar grades. I, I think one of the great qualities that are on the plate in, in the world is stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> stubbornness in the sense of, I want to do something and uh, just trying to do it and working at it constantly. And, uh, and I don't, to be honest, I don't fully know how to answer your question. There are some, some aspects that I can tell you. I come from a family of writers. I have a twin sister who's a writer. I had, my parents wanted to be writers. I had grandparents, I had a grandparent, grandmother in particular who was a writer. I had great grandparents who were writers. So this was in the world that I existed. So it wasn't foreign to me in that way, correct? I also wanted to be a baseball player as a kid. I knew no baseball players. I was inept as inept as I was as a writer. My father couldn't have cared less about sports. So he wasn't there to say, here, this is the way to catch a ball, et cetera, right? So there was no world to support me in that context. Not so in the world of writing. Now, let it be said, my parents were very much opposed to my becoming a writer, not because they thought writing was bad, but because they thought my writing was bad. But here was the key thing. There were adults in my world, actually friends of my family, who were writers. And for some reason, I have no idea why, they took an interest in me. Maybe I was the only young writer they knew but they encouraged me. I'll tell you one of the great bits of advice that I ever received from a writer. Uh, I came home from college with this pile of stuff and I gave it to this guy who was a writer friend of mine, an adult. And uh, I said, his name was Lee. I said, Lee, would you read this stuff? I mean, when I think about it, what an imposition giving this pile of crap. Anyway, 
He said, yeah, come back in a week. And so you can be sure I did. So I said, Lee, what do you think? And now Lee was from Arkansas. I think at one time he was a preacher. He had this wonderful baritone voice. I can't pretend to imitate it. He said, well, Avi, let me tell you, it takes a heap of manure to make a flower grow. And, you know, it sounds funny and it's a joke, but he's right. But at the same time, he was telling me I could grow it, right? So, and there were other writers, adults, who took this interest in me. And I, I won't pretend to know why. They must have seen something. Or maybe they just enjoyed my company. I have no idea. But that kind of encouragement from adults meant all the world to me. And since I didn't get any from my family, that made a huge difference in my life, writing life. Made me want to keep working. And, uh, you know, uh, and when I began, I wanted to be a playwright. And, and I just lived in New York City, so I would go to plays all the time and read about the theater and talk about the theater and just worked at it. Did I write good plays? Maybe I wrote one or two. Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but it was another writer, a friend of mine, who, where I was, when I was getting nowhere to in my playwriting, he said, turn to novels. There's much better opportunity. So, you know, this, this was this world I lived in in which I was getting this encouragement and taken seriously when there was no reason to take me seriously, as far as I know. And it made all the difference in the world. So mentors who, they can criticize all they want, but they took me seriously. And that was huge, huge in my life. What neighborhood in Brooklyn did you grow up in? Brooklyn Heights. Oh, nice. Yeah, good views. It was um, an old house built in 1835, I believe. And um, it was, uh, my father was a doctor and he had his offices on one floor. The top floor when I was a young kid was rented out to folks. And uh, we were in the middle. <laughs> and that's where it's no longer, in the, the house is no longer in the family now, but it's still there. So it was a brownstone? No, it's pre-Brownstone. It was oh, a brick wow. house. A brick house. And um, as they built in 1835 or something like that. And it's it's, it's still there. As I say, it's flanked on one side today by a, a small apartment house and the other by a brownstone. So it predated that. It was really early. Wow. It was when Brooklyn Heights was, it sounds odd to say it, but it was the suburban New York. Yeah, I, I would. I I have a lot of like literature from New Yorkers just kind of writing essays about the place, and because I live here and I've been obsessed with it for twenty years, and there's there's so much about people growing up in Brooklyn and dreaming of Manhattan, like that was always the the subject matter that people wrote about in these collections. 
read a short essay by Truman Capote about Brooklyn. I forget the title. He lived, he lived, uh, not that I knew it or him, about three, three or four houses down from where I lived. And he, he writes a story about Brooklyn. Uh, not, it's not a story, it's a reminiscence. I think it was for the Atlantic magazine. What's interesting, well, first of all, it's wonderfully written, number one. Secondly, as I said, he lived three or four houses down from where my folks' house was. But he describes the Brooklyn both completely familiar and utterly different than I knew. I mean, it's one of the things that when you live in a neighborhood, your neighbor lives a different life than you do, right? And they experience it in a completely different way. But it's a wonderful memoir of what Brooklyn was in my day. So there's a, a, a book that I've written about Brooklyn Heights. In that book, it's uh, Catch You Later, Traitor which is as close to uh, my own, based on my own life, as anything I've written. And it's very much about that Brooklyn Heights area, and uh, which I was very fond of. So I thought that you could talk about this conversation that the Twitter writing community has been having about uh, when and how authors end up writing a series and why. And since you have City of Magic is part of a series, uh, what is your process for ending up with a book series? And do you, is this something where if you're writing book one, you already have a plan for a second book and a third book? Or is it just something where I got more to say? I want to. Absolutely not. It's totally erratic. Uh, the one big series that I have is the Poppy books. These are animal stories. I wrote the first one, which in terms of the whole series has become the third one. And I wrote, I wrote the second one. I mean, it's it, it back and forth. And it's simply a case, as in that book, uh, the publisher saying, do you want to do another one like that? I just heard from an, uh, well, you're talking about City of Magic. It's a third in the series. I just chatted with an editor. Do you want a fourth book? She said, well, let's see how this one sells. <laughs> I mean, so I have the idea, but I'm not going to write it unless I get a go ahead. And probably never write it or, or maybe write it as a standalone, but it, it comes from the publisher in that sense. That's my approach. So the poppy books were written totally out of order. And uh, I just published two years ago, the second in the series. So it's wacky. And it's only because I like the characters so much. They're fun to write about. Going back to Brooklyn for a sec. Anyway, I brought up the thing about people talk writing a lot about going to Manhattan or dreaming of Manhattan. Did you have an inclination growing up there that like you just had to leave, you had to go, you had to cross the bridge? Well, I, I was in walking distance to the bridge. And 
and I actually like to walk across the bridge just for the fun of it. Uh, I went to high school in Manhattan. And so uh, I took the subway every morning to school. I went to elementary school in walking distance from my house. Um, but my two best friends lived in Manhattan. Uh, I knew Manhattan much better than I knew Brooklyn. Uh, I had family who lived in Brooklyn. Um, and some in Manhattan. But I think of myself, and when I go back to visit, it's Manhattan that I really want to go back to, not, not Brooklyn as such. And Manhattan had the theaters and the restaurants, et cetera. Okay, so this is actually an interesting question, and I'm surprised I didn't ask it the first time you were on the show. This person wants you to talk about some of your school visits <laughs> uh, and uh, any interesting visits that you might have had that stick with you. He, I guess this person's interested in both students and teachers and the various people you've met and places you've gone. Well, I mean, these days we I do almost no school visits, right, because of the pandemic. But I used to do a lot of them, and I love them. Uh, I found that First of all, I love being with the kids. I have a great affection for kids. But talking to kids reminded me who and what I was writing for, and that it was a tremendous support mechanism for me. Um, you know, I rem there's, there's so many, it's hard to remember them. You tend to remember sometimes the negative ones for example, here, right here in Colorado, I was talking and some guy probably in eighth grade said, raised his hand and said, you're talking a lot about reading. I think reading is bunk. I think it's a waste of time. I think this is stupid. You know, so <laughs> uh, that was an interesting moment. Uh, then there were the classes, again, they tended to be eighth grade, freshman, high school, you'd walk in and the kids would be sitting in this posture that told, which announced they had to be there and this was boring. So if I pick this up, I mean, you, you have to be very quick when you go into these classrooms to get the vibe if you to use the current expression. So when, so, when I'd walk into a class with this kind of posture and attitude, I had this question that I would like to start with. I'd say, okay, let's talk about why you think this is gonna be boring. And this sudden snaps up of the heads, you know, what? I said, yeah, I can tell you, you think this is a waste of time and boring. I, I'm interested to know why. So you give it right to them, right? And yeah, well, you're going to tell us this, that, I, I, you know, anyway, the point is they get engaged right away. And all of a sudden you're having a discussion about things. And what I've learned in this situation with kids in general, you have to be absolutely honest. If you're phony, they pick it up in a shock. So 
when they would say something, I'd have to react exactly as honestly as I could. And so when you establish that, that they know I'm not just giving a lot of BS and propaganda. Oh, you know, there's the moments, I love those in which a principal is brought in to the class to watch and say, and says something to the effect of, would you tell the boys and girls why spelling is so important? And I'd say, I don't think it's important at all, you know. <laughs> I love to, you know. <laughs> And, and and then once I remember uh, talking to a bunch of kids, I don't I have no idea where, and they were saying, and I said to them, tell me about some of your favorite books that they read. And they started talking about Stephen King. Now these are big books. And the teachers were astonished. They didn't know what their kids were reading on their own. And that was fascinating to me, that there was this whole, these were kids who were readers, but their teachers didn't know what they were reading. And I think when you get a group of readers in school, and they're not a minority, they're not a majority, they're a minority. Teachers are not tied into that culture. It's interesting. And, uh, you know, and, and, and then there are, often situations when you're talking to a whole group of kids and there are often kids who constantly raise their hand because and you know who they are. And then there are kids who say nothing. And then at the end of the session, one of those kids who said nothing comes up to you, comes up to me and says, I really like your books and I found what you said really interesting and then turns around and walks away. And you know, that was the kid you were really talking to, not the one who had his hand up all the time. Anyway, so there are many experiences like that. And uh, I love being with kids. And I don't like, forgive me, I don't really like working with students on Zoom. It's like talking to a, a postage stamp collection with all these little faces here. You don't, you don't really get the emotional intensity of a classroom or the lack of it. You don't get the kind of, you can't sense what's going on in the class when you do Zoom. I don't at least. So, but I loved it. I wish I could do it again, but who knows what's going to happen. I don't think we'll go back to a lot of class visits. Yeah, it would probably take a lot of time for that to, Right. Go back to normality. And expensive. It's expensive for people to bring me in. Yeah. The transportation and the hotel and all that stuff. The uh, you Have you been to every state? Yep. Uh, Jay wants to know if there's any possibility at all to writing a sequel to your book, per- Perlue the Bold. I guess that's a, that book from 99. That pe- There are a lot of people who love that book. Um, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> the answer is absolutely not. It never <laughs> occurred to me. Um, it, it's very touching. I mean, I just got a letter the other day. Uh, I mean, 
I literally got this a day ago. Listen to the way this starts. It, it refers to something you said. Dear Avi, wow, it's surreal to be writing to you. I grew up in a strict religious school, so imagine 10-year-old me surprised to find something upstairs, a ghost story of all things, in the tiny library. And she talks about starting to read my books. And then she says this, I'm 23 now. And after so much time has passed, one thing has remained constant, my love for stories. I mean, where did this come from and why? I have no idea. It's very touching that you have this impact on people. And so you talk about Perlou the Bowl. There are people I know who really love that book. More power to them. Um, why did I write that book? Uh, one of my sons, when he was much younger, was reading all the Red Wall books, loved them, and uh, they're really good books. But I was thinking, why can't we create a fantasy world about the American landscape? And so here I was in Colorado, and he was a skier, so it was in the snow and the mountains, and that was the motive, to write a book for this kid to give him a fantasy set in his own environment. That's it. So, no, I won't write a sequel. I have no idea. I mean, okay. it's not a bad idea. I just don't know what it would be. That's fair. Do you have any remorse for, for anything you've put out? Like, is, is there anything you've put out that you wish you could take back? That's my question, not his. <laughs> uh... I have no doubt that there's not a book out there by me that could not be made better by rewriting. There's no such thing as a perfect book. It's only a book that's done. Yeah, that's that's uh, that reminds me of like George Lucas's philosophy: nothing's ever finished, but eventually you have to stop and put it out there. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, Avi, I, I appreciate you coming on again. This is you're, you're officially the first guest that I don't personally know that has come on more than once. So, <laughs> do I get a do I get a badge on my shoulder? No, but you stripes. get to be. I should get stripes on my shoulder, right? You get to be a memorable number in the episode list. So your first episode was episode fifty, which I did deliberately, and this one's episode ninety. So. Brief. And you're the start of season three, which is going to be very well promoted, much more than the first season. One more, one more to go out on. Sure. Uh, Loyalty is sort of an, ep- an epistolary novel. It's 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 journal and which book? Loyalty. There's, there's, it reads like journal entries, right? So, in a sense, it is. Except it's not. Yeah, it is. It is. Except it's not. <laughs> not te- technically, yeah. Well, I wanted I wanted to get some some of your thoughts about either the, the, the format of like writing at, in entries, whether they're journal entries or just short snippets or in letters, the epistolary format. Uh, I've always wanted to write one of those, by the way. I never have. That's tough. It's every time I start one, I don't get past the first letter. Um, I, I, I have a draft of a letter. It's from a book. Never published. It's called Letters from a Pig. I mean, it's, 
<laughs> for good reason, it was never. Now I kind of want to read it. <laughs> do, do you think there's a, uh, aside from just the author figuring out how to do it, and, and for me it would be an experiment, but is there a literary reason that a story might demand that format? Have you ever given thought to that? No. No? Uh, I think it's the way the author feels that he or she can best tell the story. It's it lies within you, and you, you're, you, what feels right to you is the right way to go. Well, in, in reading Loyalty as a journal, did I read it wrong? <laughs> did I misread it? I don't think of it that way. Uh, um, I, the dates are there because <laughs> it's such an incredibly complex story. Hmm. And, and the dates are actually somewhat familiar to people. Bunker Hill, Battle of Concord, and so it, it's a it's a way of referencing the whole story. It's just the way it it came out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess it just automatically. Oh, must I'll read it like a journal? Because uh, that the dates with the first person. Not a bad sense. idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll rewrite it that way. <laughs> read it to your cat. Don't rewrite it. <laughs> you have a cat there. I like cats. I have seven. I had eight. Until June, oh, one of them passed away. But yeah, I have seven. We rescue them off the streets. There's so many. Yeah, I bet. So, all right, Avi. Um, I'll I'll email you. Let you know when this is going up. Be sometime okay. in September. Great. All right. Thank you, Eric. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Take good care. You as well. And that was my conversation with Avi, author of Loyalty and City of Magic and so many other books. He's one of the most prolific writers I've had on this show. I grew up with his books, love him as a writer, great author, and very insightful conversations as always. Thank you, Avi, for giving me your time and allowing my listeners to hear what you have to say on so many subjects, many important subjects. All right, everybody, I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.